0: So about 50 years ago in Stockholm, Sweden, there was two men in their 30s who decided to rob a bank and to hold hostages. This was a long hostage situation over a span of many hours where lots of Swedish uh, local police and officials got involved and tried to navigate this complex situation. These men were holed up in the bank demanding some crazy amount of currency in the Swedish market, a bulletproof vest, and a car to escape. Those were their terms of negotiation to let the hostages go. And there's a phone call, a recorded phone call from one of the hostages, who was a young lady, during this negotiation. And the phone call was was remarkable in the sense that she said she was actually more scared of the local police than she was of her captors. And it's from the situation where we get the phrase, you guessed it, Stockholm Syndrome. Where the captive begins to identify with, make a bond with, or be dependent even on their captor. You know, I mentioned this because I believe there is a corollary in our lives that this text in Galatians touches on. You see, earlier in Galatians, in, in, three, in chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says this. He says, Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And the whole context of this letter, as we touched on above, is summed up in Paul's admonitions, in his admonition to the Galatians, where he says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to this yoke of slavery. Don't go back into captivity. Don't identify with what's holding you captive, i.e., the law. Stockholm syndrome, right? But instead of bank robbers, what is in view for the Galatian believers and for us is the slavery or bondage of living under the law and not from faith. So these Galatian believers were likely Gentile converts who were being influenced by the Jewish Christians to get circumcised, to to abide by these stipulations of the Mosaic Code if they wanted to be truly Christians. And Paul says, absolutely not. Justification is by grace through faith alone, just as Abraham believed and was credited as righteous. You see, he was combating what I'll call a gospel plus scenario. Justification by faith plus a little something else means you have standing before God. And the whole letter of Galatians is to debunk that because that's no gospel at all. But I think you and I share the same struggle that occasioned this letter, is that we are so prone to have a gospel-plus outlook in life. Though we have, if you're in Christ, you've been delivered from the bondage of sin and the law and be given faith, but we're so prone to revert back to the law. So this morning, Paul is asking us the same question he asked later in the letter. He said, Oh, Galatians, where is your joy? Where is your blessedness? Because he realizes that the threat of the law squelches joy. So here we are in Advent, everyone's saying joy to the world. But so often our emotional life and our situation is anything but, right? We miss the loved one around the table at Christmas dinner. There's family strife. There's work stress. We're stretched thin on our budget. We're facing addictions. We're facing all manner of miseries in this life. How do we get to a point to say joy to the world? We're given the key to that in this text. So our big idea this morning is in this Advent season, whatever you're facing, you can wait, keyword wait, with freedom and joy as an adopted child and heir of the living God. This Advent season, whatever you're facing, you can wait with freedom and joy as an adopted child and heir of the living God. And the text falls out in three points, just to be Presbyterian. The frustration of waiting as an orphan, we'll see that. We'll also see the freedom in waiting as an adopted son. And lastly, we see the family who waits with you. But first, I want to look at the frustration of waiting as an orphan. You know, the apostle has employed a couple images in the text in verses preceding that talk about the relationship of the law and the new covenant people of faith. Paul referred to the law as, as a guardian or a parent before Christ came, but now that Christ has come, we are no longer under that guardian, emancipated, if you will, because we're sons of God by faith. So chapter 3 ends saying this, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, inheritors of the promise. And then beginning in chapter 4, our text today, he wants to unpack further what he means by heirs. And so he gives an illustration. You see the undercurrent going in to chapter 4 was this whole discussion about Abraham being the father of Israel, who was circumcised And these Jewish Christians were saying, hey, Gentiles, if you want to be truly Abraham's descendants, you need to be circumcised too. Faith isn't enough. You have to have the outward sign. And so Paul is giving an illustration to debunk that. And so he says in verse 1, he says, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So his point is that heirs who are minors are no different than slaves because you can't lay hold of that inheritance. The time isn't right. Though you, as an heir, own everything, you're still a child and you're not given that inheritance. So you're no different than a slave who also does not have access to the inheritance. Remember the backdrop. Here is that the law and the bondage that comes by trying to be justified by it. So Paul is 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 saying here in, in verse three, if we move on, he's saying, In the same way, we also, when we were children, referring to Jews and Gentiles, when we were children, were both enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. By that saying, that phrase, these principles of the world, Paul is encompassing both trying to live under the law and being crushed by it, but also those who didn't grow up in church, who didn't grow up as Israelites, trying to live by these principles that are opposed to God's kingdom and reign. You could call it, hey, money, sex, and power, trying to find all of your identity in those things, those principles that are opposed in many ways to God's reign. So let's just zoom out for a bit. Paul is wanting to level the playing ground between Jews, Gentiles, say so that both groups are under the power of sin. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the power of sin is the law, because no one could completely fulfill it, and we're all left condemned by our lack of adherence and our failure to live up to the law. So I called this first point, the frustration of waiting as an orphan, because I think it describes what Paul is wanting us to see so clearly. You know, he doesn't use the word orphan in this passage, but all around it is this adoption language of being a son of God. He's painting a picture here of the life of a spiritual orphan. Call it a slave, a slave to the law. Someone who is isolated, alone, a slave to sin, always trying to measure up, always trying to be free, Paul is calling out the frustration of trying to live apart from faith alone. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you are a Christian. But maybe you feel more like an orphan, isolated, alone, enslaved. Maybe you know you have been delivered from the slavery of sin. But boy, the world of flesh and the devil have a way of creeping in and giving you such fierce temptation to draw you back in. And the more you give yourself to your vices, the more they crowd out your joy. The more they seem to take you further away from a tangible experience of grace. The more they seem to crowd out your assurance of faith. Well, if you are a Christian and this seems to be where you're at, or maybe you're not a Christian, what follows for us all is a glimpse of new life or renewal. This is our second point. The freedom of waiting as an adopted son. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. On the heels of this slavery, we have this great pronunciation. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we, Gentiles and Jews alike, might receive adoption as sons. These verses are a treasure trove. That could take months and years to unpack. But let's just take a few of these phrases for us this morning. First, it says, when the fullness of time had come. That's, you know, the Advent language. It had been a long time coming, but the fullness had arrived. This new reality, this fulfillment, this realization of a new covenant, a historical moment that was planned from all eternity. And and what happened at the fullness of time? Well, God, the creator of the world, sent his son eternally existent with him, sharing in divinity to be what? Born of a woman. To be both fully God, yet fully man through his incarnation and virgin birth. And moving on, to be born under the law. What does that mean? Jesus was the author of the law, The embodiment of the law. How could he be under the law? That's a crazy thought. But what does that mean? Well, unlike us who are enslaved to the law, Jesus was the exception. He was not only the author, but the complete fulfillment. He fulfilled all the the demands of the law. More than that, he bore the curse of the law for us. Why? This is verse 5. To redeem. If you think of slaves, they need to be bought back. That's the picture of redemption. To be brought out of slavery. And if you're enslaved to the law, you have to have someone who can own the law. Who can completely fulfill it to bring you out of that slavery. It's a steep price to pay to satisfy the holy and righteous character of God. But Jesus was uniquely suited to do that, wasn't he? as the perfect son of God who laid down his life to buy back us rebels. But it doesn't stop there. There's a legal aspect to that redemption of being justified, declared right, purchased. But not only did Jesus satisfy the legal demand and redeem us, but he didn't just leave us alone. He brought us into a family. This is the great exchange. He takes away all the stuff we couldn't do, all of our sin, all of our transgressions, and he gives us his righteousness, and then he gives us another gift. He says, come on into my family. It's the great exchange of the gospel. He takes all that's bad and gives us all that's good. Where else in the world does that happen? Only in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's profound. I think there's something to be camped out on here for a little bit. You know, one of my favorite movies, The Shawshank Redemption, which I'm sure many of you have seen. One of the central characters in there, played by Morgan Freeman, is a man named Red, a longtime inmate at Shawshank Correctional Facility. His whole life was wrapped up in this sense of being behind bars. He was kind of a leader. It was his family, these fellow inmates. He knew how the thing worked. He had standing. There's familiarness, familiarity. But in many ways, his bondage had become the norm until one day when he was released, he was sent back into society and you would think that there would be much rejoicing, but the movie actually paints a different picture. Red was alone without his familiar faces, without his standing amongst his fellow inmates and it was depressing. He had nothing to go to. He had lost hope. The glory of being a freed man was overshadowed by the fact that he had nothing to come home to. You see, when Christ the Redeemer pardons our guilt, delivers us from bondage, frees us, he doesn't just leave us there, he brings us into a new family. He transfers us to his family. In a sense, we can walk out of jail and also be immediately brought into a new family. Here's your new place. You don't have to be alone. I've got you. What is that? That's being an heir of all the rights and privileges of sons of God. So unless we remember this, this imputed righteousness of Christ, but also the adoption, then our default will be to go back into the mindset of an orphan, a spiritual orphan. What does that look like? Well, I think subconsciously, it looks like something like this. Praise the Lord, I was saved by grace, but man, I need to get to work now. Right? that's an orphan mindset. Anytime you sin, anytime you blow it, as we all will this side of heaven, you revert back to an orphan. I guess I've got to get God off my back. I guess I've got to earn back some standing. He's upset at me, right? And how many of us might have, I don't know your story. I don't know your family of origin. Might have been in a home where that was the MO. There was a coldness. There was a performance aspect. You had to earn your father or mother's favor. That's just not the case in God's family. You're an adopted son of God and God looks at you with a never ending favor because of Christ. He looks at you and he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. He he doesn't see anything else. He sees that and you can't lose it. No matter how bad you screw up, if you come to him in faith and repentance, you'll never have to earn back his favor. It's there. That's what it means to be an adopted son of God. And that comes by faith alone. So let's, let's get off of the orphan mentality, right? Let's not go back to the orphanage where there's isolation, where there's standing in fear of God. Let's bask in our sonship and delight in the privileges we've been given. The more we can do that, the more we see our sin, the more the cross of Christ grows in its enormity for us. That's the, that's the track we want to be on. So this morning, um, this second point, I want us to see that His approval of us doesn't wax or wane because of your sons or daughters. It's not based upon your performance, but upon the performance of another of Christ. So will you be renewed in this today? That's the challenge. Or will you default back to an orphan mentality? Will you go back to the performance treadmill of trying to earn your security, trying to appease your conscience on your own with some other balm than the grace of Christ? Friends, anything else apart from relishing in grace will leave you feeling insecure. The message from the second point is that Christ has redeemed us from a life of bondage, canceled our debts, and brought us into his family. Lastly, I want us to look at verse 6 through 7 and see the family that waits with us. Look at verse 6. It says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father! So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The icing on the cake of this whole passage is the work of the Holy Spirit. If we've seen that the legal demand was satisfied, that we were brought into this new family, we were called sons of God, then now verse 6 gives us the inward experiential reality of this truth. Because we need help sometimes. So we have the Spirit. Just as Christ was sent out into the world, as the text said, so also the Spirit was sent into our hearts. That's the promise for sons of God. And what does the Spirit want to do in our hearts? Well, he, He wants to transform us from the inside out. So, the, so that we know for sure that we are sons. And how does he want to guarantee that? Well, he wants us to cry out, Abba, Father. You know, what's remarkable about this junction in salvation history is that nowhere in the Old Testament can the Israelites call God their father. That was just too close. That was too familiar. In the New Testament, Abba, Father, a term of of intimacy, of endearment. Imagine your kid busting through the door and saying, Daddy. That's what we're given access to, and it's the Spirit who gives us that language. You can't take for granted the significance of this. There's no other religion in the world where you can have a personal connection, a personal relationship with the divine Only Christianity offers that, and it doesn't come through any special thing. It comes through humbling yourself and saying, I'm falling on my knees, and I don't know what to do. I have sins. I, I can't shake them. But I believe, Father, that you have died and rose again through your Son, Jesus. Would you give me your spirit to assure me of that? And he will. It might not look like crying out, but inwardly, the Lord works and transforms. And that's my prayer for us this morning. And just a couple things to camp out on this Abba, Father, this crying out. You know, that's, in the Greek, that's like a deep groan with passion. It's not just Abba, Father. It's, it's an it's a exasperation. Abba, Father. How many of our prayer lives look a bit more sullen and somber? What would it look like to embody the spirit of this in a a relational prayer context with the Lord? You know, as Kurt has put before us, the Lord's Prayer as this wonderful guide for navigating our prayer life, what if we coupled that with the Spirit's work of crying out in an intimate, familial setting? You know, as our kids, if you're a parent in here, you long for your kids to share everything with you, right? You just do. It fosters relationship. It fosters being known. It fosters trust and delight. And that's exactly what our Heavenly Father wants from us. Let me know you. Let me in. I'm with you. And my spirit is, is groaning with you in words that are too deep. The more we can lay hold of that, the more we have access to this beautiful sonship. It's there. Let's ask for it. This experiential and personal aspect of sonship can meet you in this season of Advent when there's plenty of groaning to go around. There's plenty of sadness and stress and loss, all manner of things. Maybe the Lord wants to renew your experience of his grace this Advent season, even amidst all the stuff. Maybe you have suffered profound loss. Maybe you're in the middle of some family crisis. You know, in all these ways, our tendency is to go back to the orphanage, to figure it out on our own, to try harder, to isolate, and that steals our joy. But if you're in Christ, the Spirit has been sent into your heart, confirming that sonship. So cry out to the Lord. Say, Abba Father, I delight in your presence. Give me your joy as I wrestle with my job, as I wrestle with my family, as I wrestle with my finances. All of these things force me, it seems, to go back into an orphan mindset. But I'm adopted as your son, as an heir. I have everything I need in your love. Show me that, Lord, this week, and may he grant you that. So to summarize, brothers and sisters, this Advent season, whatever you're facing, you can wait with freedom and joy as an adopted child and heir of the living God. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we thank you that you are a God who delights to hear from your children, and you've given us the Spirit As a witness to that. So Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask for your work this week of transforming us, of shoring up our sonship, of bringing us more into that reality. Father, we want that, and would you, by your grace, enliven our hearts to that reality. Thank you that there is nothing that can separate your children from your love. May we rest in that as adopted sons and daughters of the King. And Lord, would you fuel our worship, would you fuel our work, with this deep, robust gospel underpinning and let that trickle out into the lives of those around us. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.